Welcome to Between the Sound, a place to share all things music, art, conversation, inspirations, aspirations, friendships, and where we get into it. So let's get into it. From a musical family and with a naturally driven passion to sing, a chance meeting with a record producer led to her first recording. Her first paid gig was dancing as a shadow in one of Jocelyn Brown's videos, and she has since graced stages across the world playing numerous prestigious venues as Tokyo's famous Blue Note Club, Switzerland's Montreux Jazz Festival, and New York's The Fillmore. She has performed on television in the studio and live with artists including Nile Rogers, Shaka Khan, Maceo Parker, Philip Bailey, Jimmy Cliff, UB40, Gloria Gaynor, Incognito, Betty Wright, Omar, Misha Paris, Stephen Marley, Julian Marley, Leon Ware and Aswad, featuring on no less than 12 albums by the celebrated jazz funk band Incognito. She has become a long-standing favourite with the fans, completing several world tours. Contributions for other acts include Urban Species, Real People, Down to the Bone, True Faith and Dub Conspiracy, and she has featured on nine singles for Dance Outfit Copyright, as well as tracks with the layabouts. Her debut solo album, Standing Tall, has been met with critical acclaim and described as one of the most wonderful and memorable voices by Bluey of Incognito. Today, we welcome Imani. How are you, gorgeous girl? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to have you. And <laughs> I can't wait to actually start delving into some of your past. So let's start from the beginning. Where did you spend your early years? What did it look like? Well, I was born in Nottingham. Mm -hmm. So we, we were there until I was nine years old. It was very cute. It was the, you know, 70s child. So it was actually very free and very lovely. And, you know, those of us from that era don't, didn't have all the restrictions that children, my child certainly has now. I had a lovely upbringing. It was just, it was just so much fun. Um, and then we moved to, to Derby when I was nine. And that's probably where most of my memories are because I was a teenager there. So they're the friends I still have. I don't really have any friends still from Nottingham. Yeah, and I moved down here when I was 19. Oh, wow. To the big smoke. To the big smoke. I just, I just made a decision one day and said, right, I'm leaving. And I peeled off my Bob Marley posters off the walls and took my little 10 sound tape. And I say tape, meaning cassette, cassette tapes with me. And, uh, and moved into this sort of student accommodation with a couple of people that I vaguely knew. And that lasted about a year because I started singing and life just moved on. So how did your family feel about you moving away? Yeah, it didn't go down too well, um, <laughs> if I'm honest. But uh, I'm quite a headstrong young lady. So, and I think it was around that time when I started growing my dreads, which was also not very welcome in the family. Mm. So they knew that I was making decisions that didn't involve anybody else. I was just becoming an individual. My grandma said when she realised it wasn't just twists, she said, listen, you can come here anytime, but you must leave your dreads outside because we don't have them in this family. <laughs> she did change her mind. That lovely lady did change her mind. No, I just think I, I, I showed myself to be quite headstrong. My parents wanted me to go to uni, but it wasn't, it just wasn't in my plan. I just wanted to come and see what, what life was like over here. Where do you think you got that uh, resilience and drive from? My dad, ah. who, who is as headstrong as I am. Um, and my mum, actually. So my dad, my dad, funnily enough, has just written his life story on my request. I asked him in the first lockdown to 
to write a tone so that we could, you know, when you know when the oldies the oldies go and you're there listening to a eulogy and you learn so much about somebody that you didn't know before. And I said, Dad, you got you can't we can't wait. So I now know of his life story, and he left Jamaica when he was 19, 60 years ago. Actually, this month uh, we are going to Jamaica to celebrate in a couple of weeks. So he 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 walked away from a lot at that time to to come and make it here. And originally his plan was to be a preacher. And then he got involved in voluntary work and started, you know, involving himself in sort of social and anti-racism activities and then became a community relations officer and an MP at one point. You know, that was him. And my mum ran away from an arranged marriage, came over here as a nurse. Wow. Yeah, so we do what we want to do. I love it. We just do what we want to do and we follow our heart. And, and I think that's the way to go. Don't tell my son I said that. <laughs> He actually needs to do as he's told. <laughs> Pioneers, I like that. I like the spirit of that. So where did music come from? I fell in. I didn't come here for that. I, I enrolled at college to retake my miserably failed A-levels. And I got myself a little job out of the paper selling perfume, door-to-door, it's horrendous, door-to-door sales. I was really rubbish at it. And I probably lasted about two months. Um, I lost my job. I met on the way to work one day. I was living in Woolwich and I had to go to... Watford to meet the group and get my patch given your map and you've got to go around this patch and I couldn't find my group uh, that day but on the way there on the tube I was sort of accosted by this smooth talking American brother hey girl can't go through the day without asking your name you know, oh my god here we go because I'm a record producer I said okay yeah okay I'm a singer then I was honestly messing about but he gave me his number and I put it in my little denim jacket pocket I remember it vividly and when I'm with my day, promptly lost my job. I won't go into the details of that. It's all a bit horrible. And I got back home that night and I thought, right, what am I going to do? And I rang this number because I was just brave then. And he invited me to a party and I was fearless. And I got on a got on a bus and went over there and I ended up at Jocelyn Brown's house. What? That was like day one. So she opened the door, come on in and eat. And she was gorgeous. And that party was ridiculous. There were, Ruby Turner was there. There were members of Aswad there. It was all kinds of music people. I was completely out of my depth, but I'd stupidly told this man that I could sing. So he'd introduced me as a singer. So they were going, come on, girl, I'll sing. And the only words I knew was Layla, Layla Hathaway's Baby, Baby, Don't Cry. It's the only thing I knew all the way through. So I was singing it a cappella in the garden and um, everybody seemed to like it. So I ended up doing some writing with Jocelyn's daughter. Really rubbish stuff. We had a little band called Three the Hard Way, which lasted a minute. And I babysat for the grandkids with Kay and it was all really cool. Then one day Jocelyn said, do you want to go and see a video being made? I'm like, yeah. So I ended up being a shadow in the background of the video for She Got Soul, which she'd recorded at Jamestown, just because I was there. So Kay and I were, were doing behind the screen thing. And she said, girl, you've got to get paid, uh, but you're not on the payroll. Um, so she emptied her purse and she had £25. This is all I got, but I can't have you here with nothing. And I was like, people get paid. I'm sorry, people get paid for this? Because this is fun. And that was it. I never, I never ever wanted to do anything else. I left college and I got on with it. If that isn't a sign to move in that direction, I can't imagine what else is. You don't go against fate. Yeah. <laughs> you don't go against fate. Wow, what a calling card. But you did sing though, because for you to come with even a song or some kind of idea to sing, you were singing for yourself, for fun, for family. I sang, yeah, I mean, I, I love to sing. At school, they used to make me sing. I used to give concerts in the girls' toilets because the acoustics were good. And I used to sing, um, God, what was it back then? It was Ben, it was Michael Jackson's. <laughs> the two of us need look no more. It was all of that. 
So I used to give my little concerts and then I joined the uh, choir. I was in the school choir and we did, and then in my sort of slightly later years, we did Battle of the Bands, which is absolutely rubbish, but that was the first time singing into a microphone. Mm. And then we had a Saturday afternoon disco, yeah. Derby, where you know, teen disco, so from the age of about 14, we'd go, you know, between two and six, we'd get these four hours of being away from the parents, drinking lemonade, pretending we were drinking proper drinks. And I used to um, hassle the DJ to give me the mic and I would sing over Madonna's Holiday. That's the one I remember the most. Holiday. <laughs> well, I loved it. So that was the sort of first taste. Okay. I could sing, I didn't know for sure. Yeah. So you were you were already um kind of dreaming of that before you left for London. Yeah, I didn't think it was viable. I didn't think you could do it as a living in in, in a million years. So it never it never crossed my mind that even though saying that my uncle Chris Ballin was already in London and already a singer. He's a drummer, he was a drummer originally. So when I was growing up, um, they, him and my uncles had a band. They did a band and they did sound system. So they used to build the big speaker boxes and go and do the did proper, proper sound. They also used to, used to practice that with their band. And Chris was the drummer and he did a little bit of singing back then. And I was just enthralled. And I must have been, what, six, five, six. Wow. I'd be like, I want to do this when I'm older. I'm going to do this when I'm older. One of the main influential people in your life? Oh, there's no doubt. There's no doubt. Not just him. My, you know, my uncle's, um, uh, who, who was in it? Uncle Ronald. My dad's the oldest of originally 14 of now. Now there's eight. So you've got to bear with me when I get confused as to whose name is who. But uh, my uncle Ron plays bass. He still plays bass. He's up in Scotland. Um, and Christmas drums and vocals. And I can't remember who the other one, I think it was Lloyd or one of them. He's played guitar. And my uncle Errol was the manager of the band. So, you know, it was, yeah, it's my, it's family. It's family. My mum's side, she has a sister, had a sister who's passed away now, who was a very famous singer in Sri Lanka. So um, it runs in the family. But for me, my influences definitely would be my uncles and, and Chris specifically, because he came down before me to London. Yeah. And I moved down and said, you wait I'm coming and he, he didn't really take me seriously until I walked into the incognito <laughs> rehearsal in 96 when I first joined the band. Did he um did he give you any words of advice at the beginning knowing that you were coming to town? Not really because as I say I, I moved it was quite a whim and it was only I made a decision and within three weeks I was packed and gone. No, I didn't really give anyone a chance to advise me particularly and that first year was was a bit of music I was interested so no not at that time but in the early days we did I remember a recording session that I did with with Chris and the now departed sadly departed wonderful woman that was Claudia Fontaine we were in there I was very fresh very green 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 and I'd gone in there and uh, the producers of the track were saying oh we're thinking about doing this but we're not sure has anyone got any ideas and I'm piping up going yeah we could try this we could try this we could try and Chris was like but babe that's not what you're here for. If you're writing, you need writing credits. And Claudia Fontaine, God bless that lady, stood up and said, right, listen, I don't know what's going on here. And I don't know what you're paying this girl, but you best be paying her properly. I think if I remember rightly, she actually asked what I was getting. And then she asked, she demanded another couple of hundred pounds from me. Because she what? said, no, you're rude. You're rude. You can't look at, you can't hear the girl's voice. <laughs> you know, and she, oh, she was incredible. She was incredible. Between the two of them, that they taught me that. You do give. I, try, I still give. I give 100%. doesn't matter what the gig is. Tiny. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. I could be playing on my own or, or for a million people. It doesn't matter. I give like it's Wembley every single time. But you have to know your remit. And if you get more or too much, you're not necessarily doing favours for those who come after you. If you undersell, you know, it's difficult. It's a hard one to work out what you're worth. But you mustn't undersell because the person who comes after you, the fledgling singer who's coming up after you, is not going to get their worth. 
Yes. Pandemic was a good example of that. There was a lot of freeness going on in the pandemic. We were all doing these online recordings and like I did a couple and it was like, you know what? It's a lot of free concerts. Yes. It's a lot of concerts, man. I'm not really feeling it anymore because not, not just for me. Mm. Fine, I'm sitting in my house. I want to sing. But that just devalues the industry. And we can't have that. You know, we have to know our worth. So that I mean, that's a perfect point that, you know, is not really raised enough because you're right we're paving the way for everyone that's below in the sense of younger that are coming through absolutely don't get me wrong i if, if a friend or you know if i really appreciate your music it's not that i'm going to charge you loads of money sometimes i do i do sing for free but that's my choice yeah but out there in the real world in the industry if i'm doing a bv session for instance or, or a lead vocal or or i'm coming out to do a gig with my name on the banner i'm not gonna i, I can't go and undersell that it doesn't do our our industry any good and it doesn't pave the way for young singers and that's where the future is. I'm an old bag now, I've been around a long time. So we've got to think about these youngsters coming through. Totally. And also from the perspective of venues, you know, to be not, you know, picking the the, the freebies. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, we all work for less than we should. Yeah. And I know you do. We all work for less than we should. You are an incredible talent, Amelia. And I've stood and watched you sing and I'm thinking, I hope this child's getting properly paid. <laughs> Well, your performance is great as well. And that's that's like 90% of the battle. So you sound great. Youngsters nowadays pick a sound and stick with the sound. They pick a singer and they think, I want to sound like that singer. And then they work on making their sound into that singer's sound. You and I come from a different era. We're out here to be individuals. We're looking for our own shelf. I don't want to be on anyone else's shelf. And I know you don't either, you know? And yeah, we do undersell, I think. But the battle is to, to maintain, to try and stay up there and maintain. Uh, thank you for saying that. And I appreciate, you know, that you recognize that because it is true. It's a, it's a day by day battle where you have to pick and choose, but always with the, the goal of trying to, like you say, honor our value and worth. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So you got taught some early business lessons then by the sound of it. I was, and I, I actually took a music law course quite early on because I'd been completely scammed in the, in the writing of something. I won't say who by, but I did some writing over a period of time with a particular person. I knew nothing about business, but we got some really amazing songs um, and they were all recorded and ready to go. And then it was time to do some business. So I was sat down and told that the producer always takes 75% of the writing credit and the 25% that's left is shared between the parties who've written, right? Which with a song that I've written all the lyrics and melody to, that leaves me with what, 10%? or 15%, 12.5, right? And I thought that was true and I signed some stuff. Mm. And I was having a conversation with somebody down the line. They were like, babe, what on earth have you done? So they told me that there was a free music law course happening in South London run by a guy called Kian Dahoji, who was still a friend, amazing individual. He wanted black people specifically not to get ripped up in, the, in this business. So I went there and did my music law course and I learned about the 1988 Copyright Design and Patent Act. And I now know that your lyrics and your melody is worth, if you're going to split a song, you've got your music half and you've got your lyric and melody half and it's 50-50. Or the easiest way to do it is to, is to split 100. So if you and I write a song, babe, we just split that 50-50. I may have written a bit less. I may have written a bit more. But down the line, it's just easier. As long as you've not got someone in the room who did absolutely nothing and they're getting half. You know what I'm saying? But I generally tend and have done for many years to, to split evenly because... Our law is different to American law. They do, they are very, you know, if you're if you're even in the room breathing, if you're just in the room looking at your phone, you get credit if you're in the room. That's crazy. 
right? We don't we don't run it like that here. But in a, in order to keep those relationships alive, you split that thing evenly, much easier. So I learned all of that really early on because I got scammed. Luckily, none of those songs saw the light of day. Hundred percent, nothing is nothing. <laughs> exactly. So you fight for your hundred percent by trying to scam somebody and the song doesn't come out, then what did you gain? You lost me as a friend and, and, a, and, a, and a writing partner and you gained, oh, nothing. Yeah, and lesson learned. Exactly, it's not worth it. What's your background? My mum's Sri Lankan. That's Jamaican and my mum is Sri Lankan, which means the food at my parents' house is banging. <laughs> We're talking rice and peas and curry martin and dal and chapati. Love it. It's banging. <laughs> So I'm, I am uh, completely multicultural, I think you'd say. Did you get influenced in any way from Sri Lankan culture in the music? I'll be honest with you, no. The cultural significance I have being brought up in this country is Jamaican. My influences are more Jamaican. And the reason being, my mum was on her own here because mm -hmm. I've told you the nature of how she got to this country. So her family's not here. I didn't have cousins here and uncles here. I never learned the language. I can swear and I can sing a nursery rhyme. I've got about four swear words and I can sing you something about two girls in an orange grove in Sri Lankan. That is about the sum total of it. If you want to drink a water or a cup of tea, I can do that. And we didn't go to Sri Lanka till I was nine and I've never been back with my parents. I have been back and sung with Incognito, which was amazing. But no, that's not true. I've been once more. I have been on a holiday when my son was two. So I've been three times. But in terms of that family and that influence, that's not what I've had here about Jamaica. Did you feel a connection, though, when you went back that you were from there? Absolutely. The dreads make it. I find it hilarious as people look at my face and I would say, you know, I'll be with my mum and we'd be out at a market or going shopping in Sri Lanka. And she'd be going, this is my daughter. And people be going, I'm sorry, what? And I called my mum Amma. I was, I've always called my mum Amma. It's a couple of things that, you know, you still do. And so I'm going, Amma, you, what do you think? Of, you know, and you, you sort of go into a little bit of the, the vibe there and people are looking at you like you're an alien, which I love. Yeah, exactly. I love, I love my dreads because of the, because of the problems they cause. No, they're a massive problem. Everywhere I go, people, people assume that I'm quite ghetto, I suppose. One first glance, it gives you that ghetto appeal. I'm middle class, two cars on the drive, white collar parents, my friend. I'm not ghetto, but I quite like the fact that little old ladies clutch their handbags when I come past. Because you only have to speak to me to understand that I did read a book once. Do you know what I mean? I am actually educated and I'm, I'm not... I love it. I like people. You make your decisions because then it shows the wheat. It separates the wheat from the chaff, doesn't it? Yeah. So you're you're never shy for a challenge then? No, I always take on a challenge, but I live in a world of terror and fear. You, I think you probably know this about me. I'm very nervous. I don't sing because I want to sing. I sing because I have to sing. If I had a choice, I would do something very quiet. All of it, the whole thing terrifies me. Wait, so you have to explain that though, because I think to many people that see people like you or I or anyone on the stage, they presume you want that, whether that's for the music side, the attention side, you know what I mean? So maybe it's worth breaking down what that, you know, dichotomy is. Okay, so for me, I fell into singing. From them as a, those early days, having a microphone in my hand, there's a rush that you get when you perform and people appreciate you. Obviously, my ego is clearly massive. If it's caressed by audiences, then I can't, you know, it's a drug. It's an absolute drug. But when I say I wouldn't have chosen it, it's because I just, I find it all incredibly difficult. I still, to this day, after 33, four years of singing, find it as terrifying now as I did then. Getting to the stage, I find really difficult. The thought of the gig, I find really difficult. If I'm on stage and I drop a note, gig's over for me. 
Right. Drop the note. Why am I even here? I've ruined it. I've ruined everyone's night. It's ruined. And I think the thing is for me, I've not given the value that somebody has paid their money to come and see me sing. Right. I'm supposed to be bringing my 100%, my A game every single time, which we both know mm. is possible. Mm. I've never sung what's in my head. Yeah. Never, never hit a song and thought, I've, oh my God, that was amazing. I've never yeah. had that feeling. <laughs> for me, if I don't sing though, I'm not a very nice person. It is my release. It's where if I'm sad or I'm angry about something or I've been through something tra traumatic, the only place I find solace is stage. And that is the moment from the mic being in my hand, not the bit before, the bit before is awful. Still, I stand at the side of stages. I've wiped my tears a thousand times before I've gone on stage because I'm scared, just I'm scared. And I'm probably, I'm, not, I'm around a lot of singers who are just so confident. I don't have that confidence. My confidence comes with a mic. That's my prop, mic and mic stand. Without those two, it's it's, the thought of it still terrifies me. So yeah, I take on challenges. I'm doing bands that are big and scary. I've, I've agreed to sing songs that I think, why the bloody hell have you done that? It's going to be horrendous. It's going to be horrendous. You can't do it. It's not for you. It's not your style. And then I do it. I think actually you were all right. Not bad. Not bad. Yeah. But the buzz I get from singing outweighs the fear I have of singing. Right. So the desire that you had coming from another place to the big smoke was far greater than the fear that you experience. Yeah, definitely. Still is. Still is. Any, any, any challenge, it's always like, yeah, I'm going to do it because I'm bad. And then I thought the thought of doing it is like, oh, my God. No, I'm, I'm racked. I'm racked with fear all the time in all aspects of my life, funnily enough. I've been asked to give a speech. Just an example. I'm a school governor. There you go. Don't mind saying that out loud. I do a lot of other, which is really rewarding, actually. And I've been asked to give a speech on Wednesday and I'm absolutely terrified. And I spoke to the head of the school. and said, oh, So I'm inducting new parents uh, to tell them about my experience as a parent of a child in school and as a governor. And she said, why don't you do it through the medium of song? And I thought, yeah, you're really funny. That's Because that's even more terrifying than bloody speaking. But I know it'll be fine. I like to think of myself as having a personality that breathes. So far, so good. I make friends quick. People smile at me, so I smile at them. So I'm hoping that my personality will make up for. Yeah. Over time, you've learned to trust yourself that you will come through. Yeah, that much I know. That much yeah. I know. And what I do know, and that this has taken years, is that I'm, I'm okay. I'm not bad. I'm not bad. Yeah, and you can say that comfortably. Yeah, I, I may not be the best at what I do in the field of singing that I've chosen or music that I've chosen, but I am not bad. I'm not bad. <laughs> You're more than not bad, babe. I have to say, though, it's incredible how how hard we are on ourselves and that never stops yeah but then that doesn't that make you better I mean I think there are some performers and some singers that I've met who are just so uber confident but are they the best singers I know not really every second of it counts for me every second of it matters it matters so much it will never not matter I will yeah. never take anything for granted I feel privileged to do the smallest or the biggest gig I'm neither above nor below any gig that's how I describe it and I'm privileged. People pay me to do what I love, to do something that gives me a buzz. I'm not behind a desk. Yeah. You know, how can you not take that seriously? And those who don't take it seriously are not necessarily the best performers I've ever met. One person said to me, you care too much about what people think, which is true. So there are, I, I am more able now to lessen the impact of what people think. It's not to say it doesn't hurt and it doesn't matter, but the impact is now less. I've taken that on board. That's probably the best advice I've ever been given. Mm. What I care about is what I think. But unfortunately, what I think is crippling. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah. it's crippling. You know, if I, haven't got, if I put other people's opinions on top of that, then I, I probably would never leave the house. 
yeah it's a battle it's a battle and and, and I'm, I'm glad you acknowledge that because i'm guilty of that too you know and maybe there's many of us out there but like you say time affords that that comfortability within yourself to actually say you know you're not bad absolutely there's a great sage in this industry called uh, mr michael bailey who who you may know once i was doing a gig with philip bailey from mm. earth wind and fire Right. And I was doing some backing vocals for him, which I was, I was just so honoured. And at one point, there was me and a, a couple of other singers and he stopped the singers. He went in the middle of a song. I'm like, oh, my God, no. What have I done? What have I done? And he was trying to coax us through this particular part that we got a note wrong and I couldn't hear it. And he had to sing it to me three times. There were three times, you know, not once, not twice, but three times. Devastating. Absolutely devastating. Got it right in the end. Gig went off amazing. Rehearsal was fine. Fantastic. But I left that place feeling so dejected. Mm. And I spoke to my friend, Mr. Michael Bailey, when I was on the way out. He was like, yeah, your problem. You see you. Your ego too big. <laughs> your ego's big. Your ego got bruised because somebody to told you that you hadn't got something right and it hurt your feelings as you can't you can't you can't go through life like that wise man a wise man a wise man you know I don't forget when people give me gems like that I don't forget them and I live by those things <laughs> <laughs> so with, with that bolshy but you know battling self of you when you were younger how did you get onto Eurovision <laughs> Eurovision well so in the early years I was doing a lot of sessions a lot more sessions than I do now and I was uh, at one point sort of in-house vocalist for a publishing company called Hit and Run and it was the early days of me just getting a manager and stuff so he also worked at Hit and Run as a publisher so I was just doing vocals for various people people put the songs in they need a female singer I might suit it so I sang I sang the lead on Where Are You Now which is which is the Eurovision song that was it took my money took my money went home lovely got a call a couple of days later oh we're going to put it in for Eurovision I said that's fantastic have a nice time that's wonderful enjoy that they said no 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 would you do it I said no I'm too cool for Eurovision but <laughs> I've been in a rap, but I was in the urban species for a while. I mean, that's like, do you know what I mean? Yeah. I, I mean, incognito, I couldn't possibly do the Eurovision. That's, I'm, I'm too cool. I'm too street. Yeah. <laughs> Five times they paid me to do various versions of, of Where Are You Now? We did dance version, ballad version, this version, that version. I was like, yeah, that's fine. Thank you. Take the money. Thank you. Absolutely love. No intention of doing it. And as the process went on, my manager was working on me. You know, you want to consider this. It's a massive audience. Uh, at the time, we didn't know the full scale of it, uh, but he knew that it was 25 countries. You know, we're going back, what, 24 years now. These are the days before social media. So that kind of reach across Europe, you would not have had. So he was like, you've got to think about it. What we'll do, we'll do this tune and then we'll work on your album and we'll sort of slide you back into your soul vibe. It's going to be fine, money. It's going to be great. After much consideration and me asking a few friends as well, am I going to lose my what little credibility I've got? They were like, no, 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 it's going to be wicked. We need people like you to do stuff like this. I said, yeah, go on, then I'll, I'll give it a go. And uh, ended up coming second. <laughs> I lost to the Israeli transsexual that year, Dana International. <laughs> and, and rightly so, and rightly so. Because what we love about Eurovision is its kitsch camp, you know, the whole carnival circus spectre of it. It, it, it's supposed to be it's supposed to be so that kind of level of gimmick I don't have <laughs> all I could do is sing and uh, and try and remember my dance steps which I, I've realized I'm not choreography is not for me don't know my left and right 
it was a carnage. It was absolute carnage. Uh, I'll never forget on the day of the of the performance, my choreographer was there and he was just so exasperated because he just kept forgetting to say, left foot, Marnie, left foot. I'm like, which one's my left? <laughs> and in the end, it was like, look, when you sing this line, end up on this spot. I don't really care what you do. I managed to make it through and it was the biggest thing I'd ever done in my life. It was a hundred million viewers. I can't remember how many thousands in, in, in the audience that day, but it was it was at that point the biggest thing I'd ever done and ever will do. How are your nerves? I cried. Funny, I did an interview the other day for the BBC and admitted there that I cried. I'm very honest, I'm an honest person. On the day of the Eurovision, I don't know if they still do this now, but we have to do an entire show, full audience, in the morning case of a bomb threat or anything going wrong so that they've got something to televise oh so i had to do the entire thing go through all of the emotions get on the stage thousands of people my parents weren't there yet because they were coming for the second performance i'm standing there and i'm doing all the stuff and i'm singing all the stuff and i'm doing it hitting my marks and looking at the light when i'm supposed to look at the light and tears were rolling down my eyes oh. <laughs> as i'm doing it i got through and probably Hopefully people at that, who were at that performance felt that it was the emotion of the of moment <laughs> that was getting to me, but I was just terrified. And my managers, my management team took Bex upstairs to drew lots to see who was going to come down and have a flipping word. I finished the performance on backstage. I, you know, my mascara was all over my face. And he said to me, if you F this up for us, I will never forgive you. We worked so hard. And I was like, I'm sorry, you what? Excuse me. I'm the one working hard here, right? I was so angry, very clever. And I said, you know what? I'm going to go sort my face out and go and do the second performance. And then you and I are going to have some proper words after the show. It was so clever. He knew me so well. Because if he'd have come and given me a hug and said, it's all going to be all right, I probably would have just dissolved. <laughs> they worked out what they were going to say because they, they, they all knew. Make her angry. She'll go, she'll, she'll give it. How was your self-critic? Did it behave? No, it didn't. I hated it. And that performance, of course, is the most beauty Marnie performance of all time. And every year in May, I have to go through the whole thing again because it all comes back. People want interviews, people play the stuff. It's horrible. Are you proud of it? I'm proud that I did it. I'm really proud that I did it. Yeah. I am. I am. I am. I am. I represented this country. And then, as I say, until this year, nobody came close. Yeah. Sam Ryder, who I have to say, deserved to win. Wicked performer, wicked singer. Absolutely yeah. stunning song banging should have won should have stormed it and yes there's a political situation at the moment with with ukraine ukraine song was good but i think in in any other circumstance he should have he should have won that's pretty incredible because you said yours is what 24 25 years ago it's 100 years ago it feels like it's a, long... it's a long time to to get anyone near the top again isn't it well it is but you know it's always been a political competition here i did it there was a football what was it world cup ticket scandal in 1998 and um, everyone was everyone was upset with england because they couldn't get a ticket but that affected voting there's always something that affects the voting then you've got your read your people who always vote for each other anyway yes yeah more importantly how did it affect your career going forward after that there was a minute there when obviously the song charted and i was doing the rounds and i was oh god there were so many performances that year I went to Beirut and did a performance with Run DMC of that song. It was just the most incredibly mad year. And limousines and turning up at the airport and taking out my passport. And people going, no, 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 everybody, we know who you are. I was thinking, this is it. This is my life. And, you know, six months later, you break out your passport at the airport and they're, they're checking to see who you are, like you're no one. Um, so it fades very quickly. What happened for me was um, I got dropped from, I was then with EMI. And there was a bit of a cull that year. And if I'm honest, it was a cull of black artists. 
a lot of us got dropped that year. I was I was gone. And once I was dropped, I couldn't get arrested for a little while. I couldn't I couldn't pay to do a gig. Wow. Telling me because there's a double there's a double edged thing that happens when you when you hit the limelight for a minute and you're on telly all the time, your peers think you're busy. So they don't call Armani oh, wouldn't do it. So you're not getting those calls. All that money that I earned in the one year. And it was fabulous money. It was fabulous money. It was amazing. I was getting ridiculous sums of money for performances. That wasn't even singing live on. I was miming most of the year. Horrendous. Hated doing that. Um, so the following year was really, 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 really hard. I've never been, I've never been so nobody. What a rude awakening. It was awful. I was quite depressed throughout that year. And I was thinking, is this it then? So this, all this being persuaded to do this big competition that's going to set me up didn't really work. And I think my first gig back, I'd actually asked a friend, he was doing a gig at Subterranea, and I said, oh, can I come? I'll sing for you both. He goes, I haven't got any money. I said, maybe I'll pay you. <laughs> pay you if I can hold a microphone at this gig. And I managed to do the gig, and uh, luckily people, people called me. And, and then beloved Bluey uh, from Incognito called me back. What I thought for him would be, I can't have Imani back in the band. Now she's done this thing that is so uncool. Actually, he was really proud. He really bigged it up. Been a brother to me over the years, and I've, it's... 26, 27 years of being Incognito now. So let's backtrack a bit because I uh, mistakenly thought that Incog came after Eurovision. So you were in Incog first. Yeah, I did Incog in 96. Joined Incognito in 96. Eurovision was 98. Back in Incog 99, 2000. Uh, so how did Incognito come about? Do you know what? To this day, I don't know for sure. <laughs> I don't actually. I just, got, I just got a call one day and it was Bluey. Carly and Anderson had put me up for brand new heavies and I'd gone and done some recording with those guys at the time it was before I think Sadie Garrett it was just after India had gone but I didn't feel that I was the right fit for that band and I, I can't really explain to you now what my thought process was then and it was the biggest thing I'd ever turned down in my life so I thought oh my god I'll never work again I'm an idiot and then luckily for me the phone rang a couple of months later and it was Bluey and Bluey just said yeah will you come and do a recording I thought okay and I turned up at the studio and did one song and then he said, right, you're going to come on the road. And I thought, go on then. And the first gig I did, I think, was Montreux Jazz Festival. That's the memory I have. <laughs> wow. Montreux Jazz Festival, people. Terrifying. Huge. So um, I'm not entirely sure who put me up for that, actually. <laughs> it could have been Carleen. Carleen's always been, she's such a beautiful, she's an angel. Such a beautiful lady. Years ago, when I first started out, I did back in, but my first tour was with Jaleesa Anderson, who is Carleen's cousin. Um, that's the first time I ever left the country and, and did backing vocals on the most amazing Galactica Rush album. The people, if you haven't got the album, go and get the album. Still to this day, it will stand the test of time. And I remember doing a rehearsal at Carlene's place. And Carlene said to Jaleesa, when you finish with her, I'm going to need her. Let me know when you're free. So then I did some BBs for Carlene on a tour that we did weirdly with M people. Okay. I mean, you'd think two types of music don't go together. That was... That was the tour we did with Carleen and she was just wonderful. She showed me so much. I'm self-taught. I've never had singing lessons or whatever, but she she taught me how to breathe. She had me lying on the floor with a book on my stomach and all of that. And <laughs> taught, me how to breathe, taught me technique. And she has been a guardian angel all the way through my career, very quietly sometimes. But sometimes she's in the background, putting a friendly word in a friendly ear. And then I get a call. So I think that's how it came about. It would be interesting to find out. I should ask Louie, shouldn't I? You think? <laughs> You think I should just, I've never asked him, I don't know why. When you stepped into Incog, did it feel like a good match? You said previously. It felt, it felt right, it felt right. It's always felt right. And it's always been family. It's, I've grown up in the band. That's where I learned 
my stagecraft, my performance, how to deal with audiences. I learned so much. He's given me room to grow as a, as a singer and a performer in that band and given me an amazing stage to do it on around the world. And writing? I've done what I wrote one. I'm really proud of it. I wrote a song called Rapture. Oh, beautiful. Which I was just surprised that he'd asked me to do. He just sent me a track and said, write something on there. And I, and I, I remember, but see, my son and I are in contention over this because I wrote it, I'm recording bits on my phone, trying to work it out. So at one point I said to Eden, my son, do me a favour, darling, just you sing this bit while I sing this bit so I can see if they go together because I was having some backing vocal ideas and other things. So he now, he was only about, he was just a kid, five or six, maybe a bit older. Great voice though. He's now telling people that he, he wrote on the song and he wants writing credit, which is like, <laughs> these, children, these children you see? Like mother, like son. <laughs> he was telling someone at a gig the other day that I never paid him for this thing. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. You travelled the world with Incog as well? Yeah, yeah. I've done places I'd never, up in Kazakhstan to Indonesia to Georgia, Russia. Any particular place stand out for you? Japan is probably the most incredible country I've ever had the pleasure and privilege to go to. And I have been 13, 14 times over the years. It's the most advanced but historical place I've ever been to. It's the cleanest place I've ever been to. And when I say clean, you could stand on the edge of a motorway with all the cars going past and there's no fumes. There's no fumes, there's people, their technology is, it's confusing, it's just big. You go into a store, I remember going to Tower Records years and years ago, and it was like six floors of Tower Records. Huge, every shop is just huge. And of course, everything's in Japanese and you're looking around thinking, where can I find the reggae section? And it's, oh my God, it's terrifying, but it is, and the people are just, just incredible. Wow. They're so giving and they're so polite and they're so respectful and they're so, as fans, they love music. They, they just love music. Never, there's no other place in the world like it. And if you haven't been, get some money and go. I need to. It's the place. No, of all of the places I've been to, Japan is always like the most exciting. I don't get to go uh, as much anymore because I've made a more conscious decision to be here um, over the last few years. I just want to be closer for my son. Mm. Yeah, because I want to miss out. It's so incredible watching him grow and flourish. I don't want to, I want to miss that time. So I'm trying to do a lot less long haul at the moment. Are Just, you um, encouraging him in music? Is he already, you said he's got a good voice. Is he showing signs? Oh, well, I don't want him to be a musician. God, no. <laughs> you didn't hear me say, I didn't choose to be a musician, babe. I do it because I have to. What? No, you, it's hard. It's hard. Does he want to? He plays a bit of drums. He's doing his level three keys. I believe he picked up a bass recently at school. I've not heard him on the bass. He sings, but he's not really interested in singing. He's quite shy. Is he interested in it? I don't know. He's learning logic, actually, in music at school. They've got a fantastic music programme at his school. I don't know. He's dancing, however. Oh. He can dance. Yeah, he danced in front of a friend of ours, Kevin Leo. Uh-huh. Who, as you know, is a dancer. He's as trained as a dancer, and he was blown away, so... There could be a future there for him. But I honestly don't know, because he's also got those digital skills. He does all my flyers now. Only thing you see online is, is, is my son. I see graphic design or something like that for him, but I don't want to pin him down as long as he's, he's happy. I love my world. I love my job. For him is to find something that gives him as much joy. What does he really think of your chosen career or the career that chose you? I think he's proud. He's 13. He's not going to tell me he's proud, though. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, he loves it. He's into K-pop. Yeah, which is a difficult ask for a soul singer. But 
There's some wicked K-pop though. You know, you've got no choice. It's around you. There's some amazing stuff. And I did a session the other day that just happened to be with the producer of five of the albums from a band called BTS, which is the biggest band in the world at the moment, I would suggest. Right. K-pop band anyway, certainly in the universe. There was all these discs on the wall and I'm going around, my son's going to love this, my son's going to love this. <laughs> I did photos of all the discs and he was, that was amazing, amazing producer. Yeah, K-pop is his thing right now and he's taught himself Korean. He's yeah. coming to GCSE's choices now, so we'll work out when he wants to go. But at the moment, I'm just encouraging him to do what he loves because I know from experience, if you do that, you'll be fine. Yes, it sounds like Mama Bear's the proud one. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So then, you know, obviously you've had incredible length of time with Incognito, which continues. How did your solo career weave, or how does it? It's, it's always been there from the beginning. There's something you get from singing your own songs that you don't get from singing other people's songs. You just don't get it. It's just not the same. And from the very beginning, I've always tried to do stuff. I've, I don't think I've had the career as Imani that I would like, if I'm honest. But I've never stopped being Imani. I've never stopped being a solo performer, and I never will. Those shows are the most... They mean the most to me when I go out as myself and when I'm singing what I've written and sharing my soul with people. I've written several albums over the years, only one of which has been released because I've always been running about the world with other people, <laughs> which is difficult. No, no, and I'll, and I'll continue to do it. It's, it gives me the most pleasure. You know, whenever I get a pay packet, because I've just, when I've been out and sung me, it's worth a million times more than the money I earn everywhere else. Funnily enough, though, I, my discography is massive. I've, I've guested on hundreds of tunes over the years. I'm quite proud of my discography. I, I've been very fortunate. I get called for stuff, even throughout the lockdowns when I wasn't really doing much. I still managed to get five releases out from the bedroom upstairs. I still feature on a lot of stuff. I'm, I've got some a house career that runs sort of alongside my soul career. And the biggest song I've ever had is a song called Found My Light, which I wrote about my son. Mm. It's just supposed to show when you write about your heart and you truly believe people hear it and they can't, you know, you can't walk away from that. It touches you. Yeah, and that song's touched most people. So that's been my biggest selling and biggest, well, most appreciated song I've ever written, um, which I feel really blessed about. I'm a big fan of that song. And I have to say, I heard it on the radio only just recently. And I was like, we were both, Michael and I were listening to it. We're like, oh, there she is. It means the most, actually. Yeah, because it is about the greatest love of my life. Yeah. So then on those gigs where you are giving of yourself with your own stories and lyrics, is that self-acceptance there? I feel better on those, yes. I feel better on those. I'm a bit less likely to throw the paper in there if I've, if I've messed up because, and this has taken years as well, you know, 30 odd years, it's taken me a long time to realise that perfection is not necessarily what I'm striving for. Mm. Though it hurts when I'm not perfect and I never will be, it's not really what audiences want. What they want is your heart. And if you drop a note or two on the way whilst giving your full emotion and committing to every song that you sing, they accept that. There it is. That's what, they want. That's what they're paying for. That's what they're paying for. They're not yeah. paying for me to be perfect. Yeah. Funny you just said that because I just interviewed this incredible woman called Amy V, an original artist, but she said that is what she looks for. She looks for that vulnerability. She looks for that in other artists and she looks to give that of herself. And I thought, wow, because it's not an easy thing to do. It's not. It's not. It's easy to go out and replicate every night on stage and you know do perfect performances in the studio that's dead easy we know that's easy because you can overdub and you can go in and you can tune things and get it right if you must but that's not what they that's not the full performance that's not giving yourself and you have to give yourself if you want to get anywhere as an artist I, I honestly believe that 
I did have a stint of teaching, which I did, I've, I've realised I absolutely hate, um, but I did teach vocals for a little while. And the one thing I was trying to impart to people is that your audience needs you. They need your full self. There are certain rules that you have to have. And this is outside of being, you know, warming up. You have to warm up and you have to make sure that you're, you're gig ready all the time. But you need to you need to be able to feel each song. So for me, when I'm singing a song, whether it's mine or anyone else's, I'm always thinking about the video. It's ridiculous, right? So if it's a ballad, it's like a mini movie. You've got to put that emotion. You have to get into that emotion for each song. And it's a flipping, it's very tiring. It's an absolute roller coaster, a gig. So there are songs I've written or that I'm singing that are really quite deep or sad or touch on an emotion that resonates with me because it's something I may have been through. And by the end of the song, I'm completely wrung out because I've put myself into, I have to get into it. And I'm thinking, what would the video be like? You know, is there a wind machine? Is there, you know, are we running? Are we running, running, running? Or, or, you know, am I singing this to someone? Or have I broken up with someone? What emotion am I feeling when I've broken up with that person? Or am I lost? How frightened am I? You know what I mean? And that's in the lyric. So you get the lyric, you don't just learn the song. I could learn the song, that's easy. That's, that's the easy bit. What's the emotion behind the song? What ad lib can I use to convey the emotion of this word? That's the thought process I go through when I learn a song and when I perform a song. Has that been a taught thing or is that something you sensed to do? Self-taught, babe. I don't, I don't know what the people do. A friend of mine, Charlene Hector, she said, you always do this thing when you come up to the mic for a song and you, it's like you go... <sighs> <laughs> and then she said, you put this, and then you put this performance on. So that must be what I, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know. I, I didn't see myself do it, but apparently that's what I'm doing when I'm singing to whatever song it is. Putting the emotion behind it. You can't fake it either. I've noticed. I know that. I can do gigs like that and that's not a problem, but I can't. It doesn't. It doesn't. I don't get my best. I can't really. I try not to fake it. I try to put myself back into that emotion and it's knackering and I'm really wrung out when I finish. Yeah. Don't want to talk to any fans. <laughs> No, but saying that, I do, I do love that interaction, actually, because my ego's big. And if they're going to come and tell me I'm fabulous, then I've got time for that. <laughs> the door is open. <laughs> my door is always open if you've got something nice to say. <laughs> oh, I like it because, I, I mean, once again, it's that whole privilege thing, you know. You people like what I do and you're the reason why I'm standing here and I'm able to do it for a living and I've lasted so long. So why would I not give you my time? You gave me yours. Yeah. Have you ever found that overwhelming, particularly if you're on the road, say with Incog or, you know, dates back to back? Walking? I'll be honest with you, Incog is a different beast because we do so many shows in a row. Like, for instance, if I go to Japan, we're doing two shows a night. I may not have even recovered from my jet lag before that first show. I have to keep my voice. I have to keep my voice. So I, I do tend to slip away from gigs very, very quickly without speaking to anyone, which is which I hope doesn't look bad. And I hope that the audience understands because self-preservation I can't do 15 shows in a row over a course of you know seven days or eight days without just disappearing I don't really do much in the daytimes either fortunately the rest of the band or other musicians get to go and do sightseeing and stuff like that I'm in my bed yeah oh I hear that I mean panicking about whether I've got enough voice to hit tonight's always there you know what I mean those gigs are not they're a big sing yeah they're a big sing for me it's a hard on the singers, isn't it? Because you really do rely on your instrument, which is what everyone does normally, talking. And you can't afford to do that all the time. I mean, there's many a time I've been in venues where people must think I'm some kind of snob because I say nothing. I've got no choice. And as you know, now we've done this, you're going to be trying to edit this, my friend, and you're going to realise she never, never stops talking. <laughs> right, I love it. No, I love it. I, I think I am quite a sociable person. Ah, you are. Yeah. 
So there's always that question at the end of an Incog gig, who wants to go on the first bus? <laughs> and Bluey is amazing. He, he connects with his audience every single gig, rain, shine, no matter what's coming up, no matter how many hours of sleep he's had or will have, he talks to his audience. He goes and he signs things and he, he spends hours talking. And that's fine, he's not singing. <laughs> And presumably on that gig as well, you know, there's several singers. So you've got camaraderie in that domain. I think most of us disappear yeah. after shows. I mean, obviously, you've got the wonderful Tony Monroe, who's whose nickname is Robovox, who never loses his voice, never drops a note, is just incredible, flipping all the time, can sing at four in the morning at a flipping airport after two hours sleep. Don't know how he does it. He's is. He's one of the most amazing and resilient singers I've ever known in my life. He's a brother and he's a lovely guy. I don't have that capacity. I think I'm quite strong. I think my voice is quite strong uh, and I can I can go through a lot before I lose my voice. I don't lose my voice easy. Times I have lost it have been absolutely terrifying and I, can't, I just, I can't take that risk. Yeah, no, fair enough, fair yeah. enough. It's being signed and being independent. You've done both. I've done both. Uh, which do you prefer? Um, it's a different era. So being signed was the goal when I first came through. It was the goal. You had to be signed. You had to be signed. But people make their own destinies now in the music industry. You don't have to be signed. You just have to be savvy and you have to use your social media. For an old girl like me, it's not as easy, right? Because I, do, I find it difficult to photograph my porridge in the morning and show people, you know, finding things to post about because my social media is for music. But the people who are successful, who gather following, who have momentum, they're not just posting about their music and their art, they're posting about their life. It's still a skill that I'm learning. If you have a handle on all of that, you don't need a record deal and you keep your control and controlling your, your product is, is really, really, really important. Really important. Historically, if you go back in the industry, too many artists were scammed out of publishing or or, or or that control over their destiny. And that's why you've had people like Prince coming out and saying, no, do you know what? You know, he, he's, he was at the forefront of saying, no, we're not going to live like this anymore. And this is not how we're going to run this industry. I'm certainly not going to do it. So I think actually for this, this generation of singers and, and artists and performers that are coming up, I think controlling your own destiny is the way forward. Definitely. You don't need record companies now. Record companies are amazing, but... I think that it works more when you are a massive worldwide artist. To not have a record company when you're in that position is difficult. And there is a support that you get from record companies that you can't, you don't have on your own. Obviously, there's a financial support. And the main thing is marketing. By not having a record company now is marketing, because marketing costs money. It's not just money, it's, it's connections, which if you don't have, you're going to struggle. The whole business strategy, and you've got to be savvy. Whether mm. I am or not, I'm not sure. I don't think I'm particularly good at it. So I miss that push that the record companies have. And I'm from that era where stuff is done for you. And now you've got to do it yourself. It's not an easy ask, but it has to be done. Yeah. So the, the independence really nowadays is, is more doable because we have the control of social media and online services that we can you know, generate ourselves. And it's up to you how good you are. It's up to you how big you get. It's up to you. One thing I know about Bluey is a great example, which is why he's had incognito for 45 plus years, which is like incredible. Yeah. And it's still a 13 piece unit that goes around the world and plays to packed houses, you know, everywhere we go. He's savvy on his media and he works really, really hard. Brother does not sleep. Brother does not sleep. He's thinking of the next move. Is he part of a team or is it him? 
he is there has a, there is a team all oh, right but he, the impetus is him yeah he doesn't do a gig and then go home and just go to bed he does his homework and also he's very aware of what other people are doing how the industry is moving and being shaped you know you can't let that all pass you by he's not living in he's not living 30 years ago in his mind he's living right now and tomorrow he's been, he's living tomorrow yeah technology is and how young, young people are dealing with things and he is putting that into practice and it's an amazing example of business to follow actually yeah really respect it i'm gonna have to interview him <laughs> he's incredible so he's really really it's 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 all down to the individual essentially keeping current it is keeping current and that doesn't necessarily mean making music that is not you i'm an old soul singer that's how i describe myself people say what genre are you in i'm a soul singer Whatever genre I sing on is soul, soul to the table. It might be a house tune, but I'm a soul singer, so it's soulful house. Yeah? Yes. You know what I mean? I love reggae with all my heart, but I'm not a, I'm not a reggae singer. I'm a soul singer who does reggae. Yes, I get it. It might not have that authentic reggae-ness, but it can only be what I am. That's who I am. I'm just a soul singer. You bring the pepper and soul <laughs> to the table. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> If you make your own following, are responsible for your own marketing and, and you have got yourself a level of success in the business and then you do decide to have a record company behind you, you have so much more control. And yeah, you can, you can then delegate and yeah. it's fantastic. And then you have the record company reach, which is also fantastic. Both is what I'm saying. Take more control of your own career and your own marketing and your own everything else. But then there's absolutely an argument still for record companies, but they are not the be all and end all. Absolutely not. They are just not. Yeah. Yeah. That's good to hear. And I believe Robin did that a long time ago as well, that, you know, that Swedish pop singer. Yes. You know, she was yes. signed very young and ended up getting very creative doing her own thing and then used both. Jacob Collier. Yeah. Jacob Collier. I mean, he just did a bunch of videos that were so amazing that you couldn't not listen and you couldn't not be amazed and, and follow. And the next thing you know, Quincy Jones comes along and says, yeah, I'm in. And that's, he controlled that, him, he did that. He started that, he made that happen. But yes, there was always room for a record company if the record company is looking at things from the right way for you. And also you need to know your shit. You need to do your homework. You need to know the law. You need to understand how the music industry works. Take that from me. <laughs> I've got to ask, cause you had and have, I presume, um, you've experienced having management good to have great to have it's six or one half a dozen the other there are things that a manager can do for you and i wish i had a manager at the moment which i don't um right now because they can give you that overview and also what you'll find as an artist certainly as a female artist and i'm going to say this very straight and very clear people do not take you seriously without management they just don't there are some promoters that i've dealt with who don't want to deal with me directly they won't answer my emails really they won't answer my emails because I'm the artist. They don't want to talk to me. They want to talk to a manager, which is ridiculous. Like I can't run my business. It's a double-edged sword. It's not to say you can't manage, manage yourself. I manage myself and I'm doing okay. But with management, I'm sure it would be a little bit easier in some circumstances. We were very privileged uh, to have you sing at our wedding. That's love. That is true love. And it was, aside from it being a very special moment, it was an honour to have. You graced us with your voice and your presence and your love, as you say. Oh, um, and it was a beautiful day. It was a beautiful day, babe. It was a beautiful day. You looked so amazing that day. Oh, oh thank you. I can hardly remember it. But... <laughs>
So how open are you these days to um, the variety of gig invitations? Because as you say, you do gigs for love, you do gigs for profession. You also have motherhood now to, to balance. So you are taking a back seat on the invites? I am more choosy about the gigs that I'm doing. I don't promote everything I do at all. So I'm choosy about where my photo goes and where my name goes. Um, but I'm a bit more choosy and also I'm more choosy with my time. And I have to say the pandemic has had an effect on me and my feelings about the industry and where I sit in the industry. Because that time of reflection that I had and that quality time that I had with my son and my family really showed me what's, what's important. Those younger days where I would just crawl over a broken glass to put music first. I'm sorry, I just can't can't do that. Music is, it is who, who I am and it is what shapes me. I'm not just me now, I'm a mum. And that's more important. My son is the future. The lyrics to Found My Light say it all. I'm just watching him grow, watching his personality be shaped, seeing how he navigates his way through life is more important. It's just more important. And your priority has given you perspective. Yeah, there's only a few more years left that I'm going to get this, you know, because they don't want you anymore, do they, kids? <laughs> The hugs aren't as forthcoming as they used to be. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Uh, but coming back in, it's made me rebalance a little bit my priorities. Beautiful. Current yeah. projects? I want to do a reggae album. Shh, don't tell anyone though. Yes! I haven't got a time. I've learned my lesson. When you tell people, yeah, we're going to do this album's going to come out next week, it's not the one. So um, that's what I'll say at the moment. And there are releases just on... Um, a song for a company called Revival who are doing dance versions of classic songs. I have done a recording for that, which I'm really quite chuffed to bits with. And that'll be out soon. There's always something coming out there. There's stuff quietly dropping all the time with me. Nice. <laughs> what would you advise your younger self? The advice that I've been given that I've mentioned already, you know, taking other people too seriously, being hurt by other people's perceptions of you. I should have done a lot less of that yeah. over the years. I should have done a lot less of that. I should be concentrating on what I'm doing. And the other advice, I don't know about to a younger self, but certainly to be proud of everything you do. Don't try not to do stuff that you're not going to be proud of. Most of the things I've done from the Eurovision all the way through to the smallest things I've done to the little gigs down the road where I just sing my thing. I've loved every second of it. And make sure you understand it's a privilege. Don't disrespect it. Don't disrespect those around you who facilitate what you do. Don't be late for your musicians. Don't disrespect your sound engineer. Have manners with your lighting guy. Treat people with respect everywhere you go. Have a good word, a kind word for the person who's cleaning the room after you've been in there. Do you know what I mean? Just have manners. And what you give will come back to you. That's what I've learned. What's the definition of success? Uh, for me, being able to continue to do this for over 30 plus years and still looking at the future, people still want me to sing. Yes. I wish I was richer. I wish I had more houses. That'd be nice. Is it the Beale and Lendl? No, absolutely not. It's just, I just need to be able to sing and luckily I can. Well, I mean, I consider you the definition of success for sure. You've paved oh. the way and you definitely um, have incredible insight to share. I'm, I'm honoured that you've shared it with me today on this podcast and anyone that will be listening to it. And I know that, you know, your success is going to continue. The world needs it, you know? Thank you so much. No, I'm very, I'm very lucky. People, people still want to hear me. So I'm going to still shout into microphones as long as people want to hear it. Keep shouting. <laughs> I got one more question. Go on. Between the sound, what does that phrase conjure up for you? For me, music, the, the epicenter of music for me is live performance. And for me, between the sound is what you don't do. 
that makes things work. What you choose to sing, what you choose to do as a musician, what you choose to play, most of the time is what you don't play that makes it better, right? That's the bit between the sound. That's the, that's the noise you're not making. Because if you overcrowd something, with whatever it is you do, you know, it's easy to do. I can ad-lib for a hundred years. I can I can mess about with people, with melodies all day long, no problem. But sometimes it's what I've chosen not to do that has made that performance a success. Amen. Imani, hey, I've taken up so much of your time. Oh, I've loved it. It's been so nice talking to you, sweetheart. I love it. I don't see enough of you, Amelia. I know. Thank you for your time. Sending you love, sending Eden love. Thank you and love to you, Michael. Take care. Thank you. Mwah.